0: You're listening to Over the Top, a great war podcast. All right, folks, welcome back for episode 18. I hope everyone is in good health. I hope everyone is doing good. And I hope everyone enjoyed the previous episode on Fritz Chrysler. His memoir wasn't the longest one because his time on the front was short. I read it in something like two short reading sessions. And a session for me means taking time out of my day to sit down and read however long that may be. And honestly, I wanted to get in a short biography episode before jumping into the spring of 1915 because there's so much to cover And I got a lot to talk about, and it's probably going to be a bit of time before the next biography episode. If there was such a thing as a World War I big hitter category, an all-star battle lineup, I would say the Dardanelles definitely makes the team. This was a major campaign for the Great War. A massive amount of resources was used up. And I was thrown into another pickle, and not the kind you put on a turkey sandwich. See what I did there? Turkey sandwich? The Dardanelles? Huh? No? All right. The Dardanelles campaign was long. It lasted almost a year. That can't be covered in one long episode. There's too much. I was torn between doing this campaign with back-to-back episodes with nothing but the Dardanelles or stick to a historical timeline, which means covering other great war events along the way. And what I mean by that is... I would be jumping back and forth from timelines if I just knocked out this campaign with back-to-back episodes. The Dardanelles campaign ended January of 1916. I would then be jumping back to March of 2015 because there's, there's events on the Western front that I need to cover. That can get confusing. So I think my decision is to stick with a historical timeline of events as they happen. So on the next episode, I'll be moving back over to the Western front to cover the battle of Neuve Chapelle. Then after that, I'll probably go back to Gallipoli and then back to the Western Front and so on. And because I'm sticking to a timeline, I think everything's going to fall into place. This episode will cover the British War Council's plans for a combined Commonwealth and French naval push for the Dardanelles. And their target, the ancient city, Constantinople. I'm super excited about the year 1915. If you're a history nerd like myself, I think you're really gonna enjoy it as much as I do. And a little disclaimer, if you thought 1914 was bloody and sad, 1915 will get worse. Mankind will grab a shovel, dig a hole, crumble up its morals, toss them in a hole, burying them, steeping to the lowest forms of humanity, deploying new methods to exterminate the enemy. Oh, and one admin note, I got my new audio interface. Yeah! Ah, yes! Super excited about that, and I actually had it up and running the past two episodes. I hope you heard the difference in sound quality, because if you didn't, well, I just wasted some money, and that's never good. This is a podcast. Great sound is the key to a good podcast, aside from a good topic to talk about, of course. But sound is pretty important, so I just wanted to update everyone on that. All right, now on to what I'm drinking for this episode. Drum roll. I'm actually just drinking a nice tea, yep. Sipping a little alcohol when I first started this podcast kinda took the edge off a bit, or at least I like to tell myself that. But I'm getting a lot more comfortable talking into the mic alone. And also, I just didn't feel like having a drink right now. All right, folks, sit back, relax, and let me get this started. The Dardanelles, a narrow body of water with history dating back to ancient times. The entrance begins at the Aegean Sea, leading up to the Sea of Marmara, which separates Europe Turkey from Asia Turkey, and then out to the Black Sea. This passage will lead boats right into Constantinople modern day Istanbul, or what was known to the ancient Greeks as Byzantium. Ancient Greek mythology tells a story of a sea goddess named El who fled with her brother Pyxis by way of the golden fleece ram before being sacrificed. During the flight, El fell from the back of the ram plunging into the sea. Some believe she drowned while others tell a story of her being rescued by Poseidon, who then turned her into a sea goddess. The Dardanelles where she is said to have fallen before modern times was known as Espantos, the Sea of El. Since the nineteenth century, scholars have accepted the fact that the ancient city of Troy stood on the Asian side of the Dardanelles, and a mound of earth, earth there is said to contain the bones of Achilles. It was across the Elispont that Leander swam each night just for the love of Hero, the priestess of Aphrodite who flung herself into its waters when he drowned. The Persian emperor Xerxes led his army through this water strait when he set out to conquer the Greeks in 480 BC, in which they defeated the Spartan Greeks at Thermopylae. They destroyed the Greek naval fleet at Artemisium, which led to the fall of Athens, but then lost to the Greeks in a naval battle at Salamis. Alexander the Great crossed the strait a century later. What made the Dardanelles such an important waterway is because it connected the Mediterranean world at the Aegean Sea to the Balkan states at the Black Sea, all through a short water passage. Constantinople sits at the heart of it. The Dardanelles hosted many armies passing through over many centuries. It had become a great interest to the British War Council at the end of 1914 as Turkey entered the war on the side of the Central Powers. But the one problem the British commanders had going into this was they underplayed Turkey's willingness and capability to put up a fight. And who's watching this area closely like a shark watches a swimmer casually floating in the ocean? Russia is. They have a great deal of interest in Constantinople because of where this ancient city lies. And of course, depending on how the Dardanelles campaign would play out. But I'll go into that shortly. By February 1915, the British 29th Infantry Division became very popular almost overnight. They seemed to have all the British commanders and even French General Joseph Joffre fighting to have them in their presence. And why? Well, first off, the 29th was the last of the pre-war regular divisions who had not been shipped out to the front yet. They were regular soldiers, not reserves. They were trained and ready to go. They were still in England, basically just chilling out. And second, they were available and much needed. Sir John French was convinced that the German trench lines across from the BEF were being replenished by fresh reserve soldiers. He demanded that the 29th immediately be shipped to the Western Front. He even got Joffre's backing on this. But the decision to where the 29th would go wasn't up to French nor Joffre, It was the war minister, Lord Kitchener's decision. And Kitchener at this point saw the Western Front as sort of a death zone after the amount of casualties taken at Mons, Le Cateau, the Aisne, and Ypres. He thought it was better to send colonial soldiers to the meat grinder rather than a fresh division of well-trained regular soldiers. Kitchener wanted the 29th for a new campaign in the Mediterranean. The British War Council created a committee to come up with a plan which would decide where the best plan of attack on this new front should take place. The meeting of the minds. It's like walking into a board meeting filled with old men who probably smell like day old boiled eggs and cigars debating the best plan of attack, even though most of them probably couldn't remember what they had for breakfast. And more importantly, whose methods are probably outdated. Well, in February, the council decided that Salonika was the spot to launch their campaign. Salonika is a Greek pork city. Si- Did I say pork? It's not a pork city. It's a port city. Come on, Rich, get it right. It's a Greek port city on the northwest part of the Aegean Sea. The committee thought Salonika would be a great staging area to release troops into the Balkans and meet the Turks there. And not the worst of ideas, because this wouldn't only threaten the Turks, it could possibly put a threat on the Austro-Hungarians. But there was a minor issue. Although Greece was welcoming to the British using Salonika as a staging area, technically Greece was still a neutral country. This could complicate things. Athens could pull back if politics go south and say, never mind, we're staying out of this because we're neutral, please take your troops and get out. And it was around this time that a German-led Turkish force, which included Arab fighters, totaling around 25,000 men, crossed the Sinai Desert and reached the Suez Canal in British-controlled Egypt. Here, they picked a fight with a much better fighter at the time. The British in Egypt, under the command of General Sir John Maxwell, were well-prepared. They knew the attack was coming from reports received from aerial reconnaissance. On January 28th, a British pilot reported having seen thousands of Turkish troops along with field guns moving across the Sinai Desert. The Suez Canal runs roughly around 100 miles in length. These pilots had their hands full keeping an eye on it. The Turks launched the attack on February 3rd. The British pulled up their ships to the canal and began firing directly onto the Turkish positions needless to say the turks were forced to retreat back across the desert in a hurry the british lost just a little over 100 men and the turkish lost over 2000 and this is what led the british war council to believe that the turkish wouldn't put up much of a fight in the dardanelles after what they displayed at the suez canal i get it i understand why they would doubt the strength after this but they didn't take into consideration This force had just crossed a desert by foot just to get to the canal. Who crosses a desert and is ready to go 12 rounds just like that? In fact, the Turks trekked across 120 miles of desert sand and heat, and with only the water they had on their backs and the water they carried on pack animals. There was no accessible water outside of that. The Turks and Turkey aren't crossing anything. They've been home fortifying their defensive positions, You think somebody from the BWC, British War Council, would have agreed this would be a completely different fight and they should assume they'll be ready to go 12 rounds. Things are heating up in this neck of the woods. And to add to the rising tensions, it was also around this time that Bulgaria accepted a hefty loan from Berlin. It was looking like they too might be joining the Central Powers. Kitchener needed to deploy the 29th. The time was now. They got their orders for Salonika and prepared to move out. However, after French and Joffre got word that the 29th received orders, not for the Western front, they both threw a fit like two kids throwing themselves on the ground, stomping their hands and feet. And it worked. Kitchener called off the 29th's deployment. They would remain in England for the time being. At this point, the BWC was still in favor of a Dardanelles naval assault and a ground war launched from Salonika into the Balkans. And one would not pull from the other's resources. Vice Admiral Sackville Carden, head of the fleet, said he could reach Constantinople in 30 days and that a large army involvement would not be necessary. The Dardanelles naval assault would include some of the biggest battleships in existence from both the British and French Navy, Before battleships or pre-dreadnoughts, steel ships were barely coming into existence used in the American Civil War. The ironclad battleship was introduced in the second half of the 19th century because wooden ships became too vulnerable for the new explosive shells being used. But in the late 19th century, a pre-dreadnought was born to revolutionize naval power, a modern beast of a battleship for its time, the HMS Dreadnought. And then, in 1912, construction began on a new type of dominant battleship class, the Super Dreadnought, and among them was the HMS Queen Elizabeth. She was the best of her class and would lead the Royal Fleet. These new battleships were powered by oil instead of coal. They would also see action during the Second World War. There are people who are really intrigued and solely focus their attention on either planes, tanks, submarines, or ships, a niche they're comfortable with. And I've stated this before, my favorite part about the history of the World Wars is the grunts, because I was a grunt and I like to hear their stories. But these super dreadnoughts, I'll admit, they really get me excited if you know what I mean. To me, they just look so amazing and intimidating at the same time. Tough looking, yet graceful as they move through the seas. The USS Texas in Houston, I believe, is among the last few standing or floating. I really need to make a point in seeing it. Problem is, there's not much else to see in Houston. And sadly, the HMS Queen Elizabeth after the Second World War was paid off and scrapped for its medal. What a shame. It should have been in a museum. I sounded like Indiana Jones right there. On February 19th, Admiral Carden pulled up the fleet to the entry point of the strait and began shelling the Turkish forts at the entrance. The fleet included 12 British and four French battleships, 14 British and six French destroyers, an assortment of cruisers and 35 fish, fishing trawlers that had been brought in from the North Sea with their civilian crews to be used as minesweepers. And of course, leading the fleet, glimmering off the ocean was the crown jewel, the Queen Elizabeth. The strategy for a successful passage through the Dardanelles was to have the minesweepers clear the mines that the Turks had laid, while the fleet continuously shelled at the artillery positions on both sides of the strait. They would continue this while pushing toward the Sea of Marmara and finally Constantinople. Sounds innocent enough. And at this point, The German military advisors for the Turks were doubting they could defend such a massive naval assault. The Turks only had around 100 operating artillery pieces with very few troops. Imagine you're standing on either side of the Dardanelles, watching this massive fleet coming right at you through the binoculars. Scheisse! For Carden, his thought process on taking the fleet into the strait was a cautious one. These ships were a serious asset to the Royal Navy. You're not just going to foolishly send them through without calculating the risk. Unfortunately for him, he was a little too cautious. Carden had the ships firing from a distance of three miles, even from the entrance. No real damage was being done, mainly because they were unable to see what they were firing at. It was later estimated that only 3% of the shells fired actually did any damage. The Turkish artillery crews were either underground or behind giant mounds of earth. And yes, I'm sure their nerves were being tested as these massive shells were exploding around them, but they re for the most part unharmed and could resume firing on the ships once the British stopped their firing. But then the weather turned foul, bringing the shelling to a halt. It resumed again on the 25th of February, and this time, some of the bigger ships pulled to the entrance of the strait and offloaded raiding parties of Royal Marines at Kum Kale and Sed The Marines destroyed two Turkish guns on Achilles Mound and moved on to destroy a 9.4 inch gun from the Orkney battery, but this was no easy task. But they had no choice. The guns had to be destroyed, or the fleet would never make it through the strait. The overall advantage to the raiding party's success in destroying the guns came from fire support from the HMS Vengeance, Dublin, and Basilisk. A Marine lieutenant describes the situation arriving to the shore saying, quote, When we got just off Sedelbar, the fleet started bombarding like blazes. We got into our cutters and finally got ashore and everything looked in our favor. The patrols got out and went up the cliff. One went to the top through the fort and the other straight up. When they got to the top, they got it thick. Poor old Baldwin was very soon caught. He got one through the head and died a time later. Then we had a good deal of firing. I finally found we could not get up there as they were in ruined houses sniping on us. So we found where they were. I came down to the beach and signaled which houses we wanted shelling and they let them have it. Then I took my patrol up and did not have much opposition. Jones of 14 platoon was killed also Dieter of 13 platoon. We had quite a nice little scrap and then they sent a lot of shrapnel over, but they didn't get us. Lieutenant Charles Lamplow, Plymouth Battalion, RMLI, end quote. Turkish snipers had embedded themselves waiting for a shore party to arrive. A Lance Corporal describes his situation after landing ashore saying, quote, I signaled back to the officer commanding that all was quite clear. The place seeming to be forsaken and quite dead but we found it very much alive within 10 minutes i received two bullets one through the top left pocket and another under my right arm for a second i stood gazing around to see where the man was that fired but he was concealed more bullets came across and i made my way inside the fort for cover though little was found i was followed there by two other men from my section an hour passed away before we could get out of this place and the three of us just lay there on the ruined wall which had been blown down by our ship's guns. The bullets were whizzing around us and I can assure you we had a very warm time. Lance Corporal Harold Benfell, Plymouth Battalion, RMLI. End quote. During the ground assault, the HMS Argumenton was hit seven times by Turkish artillery firing 9.4-inch shells. A midshipman describes the situation saying, quote, I found that watching the enemy's guns fire and waiting 15 seconds or so for the screech of the projectile coming over was a distinctly nerve-wracking experience. I kept on wondering whether it would be the next one or the one after that that would lay me out. I have come to the conclusion that only those who have been in action during the course of their lives know what the real funk is. A little blood makes such an awful mess and I thanked heaven I was not a doctor, as a small fragment of shell makes a ghastly wound. Midshipman Herbert Williams, HMS, argument on, end quote. About 24 hours later, all the other forts at the entrance were neutralized. The withdrawal of the troops was chaotic as the destroyers had to move up in close to provide covering fire while the smaller boats picked up the men. However, these ships didn't dare venture too far into the strait, not before clearing those dam mines. And those dam mines did create some problems. The sea mines that were laid were these big steel balls with spikes around it that were being anchored down, held by chains just below the surface. When a ship or U-boat made contact with a spike, this is what would detonate it. And this wasn't no minor explosion. These steel balls made a huge explosion with massive damage, often sinking ships with one mine. There were hundreds of thousands of mines laid during the First World War, the majority of them being laid between Scotland and Norway along the North Sea, but I'll get into that later on down the road. Then in World War II, more sea mines were laid than in World War I. I believe there's still active mines lurking in the ocean today. Now, about the civilian crews from the fishing boats that were turned into minesweepers. Once they started taking fire from the Turks, the crews refused to go any further, and you can't blame them. There are fishermen that got caught up in this war, forced to man these boats, and the Navy crew that replaced them were inexperienced, didn't know how to work the fishing vessels and the minesweeper gear. One group of travelers finally made it past the entrance point of the strait, but once the Turks spotted them, they put spotlights on the ships and opened fire. One trowler was sunk and the others hightailed it back to the protection of the fleet. The other problem for the fleet was when the Turks were firing artillery at them. It was from behind cover or mounds of earth and the ships couldn't pinpoint where the firing was coming from. They didn't exactly have the most sophisticated aerial reconnaissance planes to assist them. The sea planes being used at the time were kind of Barney Rubble-ish if you know what I mean. It took some serious courage to jump in and fly these boxes and take them up in the air. One seaplane from the HMS Ark Royal took off with a mission to spot these artillery positions, but in midair, the propeller broke apart. It was a miracle the two man crew even survived. One of them described it, saying, It was a perfect day, with just the right amount of wind for taking off from the water, and we were soon in the air. It was an exhilarating moment. There below was the Queen Elizabeth with her eight 15-inch guns ready to fire and trained on the coast. We soon reached 3,000 feet and we were ready to cross the peninsula to the target. Then it happened. In a moment, the machine was out of control and we were hurling towards the sea. Lieutenant Commander H.A. Williamson, HMS Ark Royal, end quote. The Turkish mines and constant artillery fire on the fleet was a big problem that needed to be reassessed by the British War Council, ASAP. And it's important to point out that this new campaign in the Dardanelles was to help the Russians by pulling soldiers from the Central Powers away from the Eastern Front to support this new fight in the Mediterranean. Russia had no plans to involve themselves, even though they had enough soldiers to spare not far away plus warships sitting in the Black Sea. The ultimate goal was to take Constantinople from the Turks. Russia wanted this and figured if they couldn't have it, nobody else should. Russian General Sazanov said, quote, I intensely dislike the thought that the Straits and Constantinople might be taken by our allies. When the Gallipoli expedition was finally decided upon by our allies, I had difficulty in concealing from them how painfully this news had affected me. End quote. Hang on, it gets even more complicated. Greece offered three divisions up to be used at the Dardanelles, which could possibly persuade Italy, Bulgaria, and Romania to join in on the war. At this point, the war council and the admirals in the Aegean were seeing a desperate need to clear the Turkish forts before proceeding up the strait. Russia again, wasn't having it. They said, with the possibility of losing Constantinople to the British and French was sickening enough they didn't want their Balkan challenger, the Greeks, to get involved, thinking they might start taking up land in the Balkans after the Allies win the war. In a message sent to Athens, Sazanov said, quote, In no circumstance can we allow Greek forces to participate in the Allied attack on Constantinople. End quote. A very short and upfront message that naturally upset the politicians in Athens. They said, fine, we'll take our troops our pita bread, our hummus, and we'll go home. And I don't know about you, but when the waiter takes away the bowl of hummus and there's still some scoops left, I'm like, pardon me, sir, please bring that back. I still have some pita to finish that off. I love this stuff. Obviously, I'm kidding about the pita and hummus. Not sure if my humor is any good or if I have a chance at stand-up. But in all seriousness, after Sazanov wrote this, The Greek politicians were greatly offended by his statement, and I don't blame them. Shortly after, the Greek government fell and was replaced by a more Kaiser-friendly government. This made the king of Greece, Constantine, happy since his wife was the sister of the Kaiser, Sophia of Prussia. Constantine and Sophia were also third cousins, and also Queen Victoria was Sophia's grandmother. Just another picture into the lineage of the aristocracy during that time. Churchill at this point was still pushing for a Dardanelles incursion, demanding that admirals Carden and Derobeck continue their push forward. But Churchill's close ally, Admiral John Fisher, was skeptical. He believed success in the Dardanelles couldn't be achieved without landing thousands of troops first to deal with the threat on the ground. And on the other front, Sir John was still complaining that committing troops anywhere except the Western Front would be disastrous. All troops were needed in Belgium to support the overall objective, which was to defeat the Germans and push towards Berlin. He believed they were being sucked into a game being played by the Germans, taking the focus off the Western Front. But Lord Kitchener was set on the Dardanelles and re-released the British 29th Infantry Division to support a new offensive. This was a new British expeditionary force under the command of General Sir Ian Hamilton that included Australian and New Zealand troops being moved in from Egypt. The French also had assembled a new force to support this as well. By March 13th, the plan was set. Mines were being cleared and a land assault was just days away. And This was also when Cardin relieved himself from command due to poor health and was officially replaced by de Robic. What de Robic and the rest of the fleet didn't know was that on March 8th, a Turkish mine layer boat named Nusret somehow got past the Allied fleet undetected and laid 20 mines across a section of sea that was previously cleared. Now these newly laid mines were lurking beneath the surface, which was believed to have been cleared, just waiting. There's a lot at stake with an operation like this. They have no idea what kind of preparations the Turks are making. There's a huge fleet of ships at stake here. And they still don't know what the fate of Constantinople will be if they do make it that far. And overall, I think Sir John French was right, in my opinion. The war plan shouldn't have taken a detour from the Western Front. I think this was a mistake. Germany's first plan of attack was to take Paris. The British are in there because Germany violated Belgium's neutrality. The war should be fought in Belgium, pushing the Germans back, and target should be Berlin. Now they're being pulled away to a far off place like the Dardanelles to help Russia, even though Russia won't involve themselves there. All they want is Constantinople. I'm not going to help you rob the bank, but I do want a substantial cut of the money. That's basically the mentality of Russia towards the Dardanelles and its so called allies at this point. The British War Council had a lot to ponder. And all right, folks, I'm going to start wrapping this up right here. On the next episode, we're going back to the Western Front for the Battle of New Chappelle. And, oh, my God, folks, I am sorry. I'm not even sure if you heard that. My bulldog is gassy today. I am sorry. This episode's World War I. Sorry, jeez. Woo! This episode's World War One recommendation is, and I know I said this on the last episode, but I'm going to recommend it again since I really enjoyed it that much. Wooden Crosses, or Le crues de Bois, directed by Raymond Bernard, released in 1932. Outstanding movie. The cast is an all World War I French veteran cast. But I warn you, it's not easy to get. So if you can get your hands on one, grab a copy. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook. If you're on social media, please leave me a review if you can. It would be much appreciated. And as always, I appreciate you for your continued support of the show. Till the next episode. Take care, everyone.